was. You grab a seat. Uh, go ahead and turn to Matthew chapter 4. Uh, it's nice to be back in the sanctuary today, isn't it? I mean, the other one was cozy, uh, and it was, it was cozy. Um, we're thankful to be able to uh, not have quite as severe temperatures this week, so we can be back uh, together in this space. Uh, but today we're going to be picking up in Matthew chapter 4, uh, starting in verse 12, and we're going to go all the way through and, and, and finish up Matthew chapter 4 today. Uh, we had taken a, a break last week as we were in Acts chapter 14, jumping back into Matthew this morning. So this is following after Jesus' baptism. It's following after his temptation in the wilderness. And now uh, we begin to see Jesus' initiation of his ministry and really the initiation of the kingdom of heaven that Matthew is overwhelmingly focused on. Um, and what we'll see in Matthew chapter 4, verses 12 through 25 is that uh, in some ways, Jesus is, is saying the same thing and doing some of the similar things to those that have gone before him, other prophets and other people in the Old Testament. And yet, the way in which Jesus does these things that are similar far exceeds what anyone would have thought he would do. And in the sense of like, he, he goes way beyond what John the Baptist would do or could do. He goes far beyond what all of the Old Testament prophets could do or would do. Um, and so while it's a similar continuation of the ministry of the Old Testament prophets, it is something that is profoundly new and profoundly different when Jesus comes in the flesh and begins his ministry among us. And, and maybe to some extent you hear that and you go, well, of course, it's Jesus, duh, right? Uh, but one of the things that overarching themes as we get into this morning um, that I want to challenge you with on the front end is, uh, is how do you view Jesus? Uh, and I'll, I just kind of want to challenge you to, to, to maybe take an, a self-examination of what is my view of Jesus? Um, because here's, here's, here's kind of where I'm following this morning and where we're going to come. I think we, we fall to two extreme views of Jesus, where we, wrap, we can wrap our heads around him taking on flesh and being a, a, a human just like us, or we can wrap our heads around him being the creator of the universe and, and completely different than us, and we have a really hard time figuring out what that looks like in the same person. Uh, and so we probably drift towards one of those extremes and one of those views of Jesus. And the reality is, is that Scripture challenges us to see not just Jesus, the Son of God, or not just Jesus, the Son of Man, but Jesus who is both eternally the Son of God and takes on flesh and dwells among us. Like, and as, even as I said, I go, that falls short of explaining who Jesus is, doesn't it? Uh, it, it tells us logistically and functionally who Jesus is, but our minds really can't wrap around that, I don't think, or at least mine doesn't, and you might have, you, you, you probably do have a greater capacity than I do to wrap your head around Jesus, fully God, fully man, all the time, and what that looks like. Uh, but Matthew chapter 4, verses 12 through 25, we'll begin to see Jesus' initiation of the kingdom of heaven, the, the, the initiation of his earthly ministry, and then it's going to start to unfold in greater measure uh, as we move forward. But this is kind of a broad overview of what Jesus did as he began ministering uh, on earth. So Matthew chapter 4, starting in verse 12, it says, Now when he heard that John had been arrested, he withdrew into Galilee. 
And leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum by the sea, in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali, so that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. And for those dwelling in the region and shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. From that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. While walking by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, in the boat with Zebedee, their father, mending their nets, and he called them. Immediately they left the boat and their father and followed him. And he went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. So his fame spread through all Syria, and they brought him all the sick, those afflicted with various diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons, those having seizures and paralytics, and he healed them. And great crowds followed him from Galilee and the Decapolis, and from Jerusalem and Judea, and from beyond the Jordan. What we're going to do this morning is we're going to kind of split this into the three sections. They followed kind of the three sections that probably you have headings over in, in your text uh, or in your Bible this morning. Um, but just as a reminder, when you come into the Bible, now this is just a freebie, when you come into the Bible and you see chapters and verses and you see headings, those are all late editions, right? Those, those are coming out of like the 16th and 17th century so that we can go turn to Matthew chapter 4, verse 12, and you know exactly where to turn. The subheadings were not in the original language, so that it doesn't say in Greek, Jesus begins his ministry. Oh, this is what this is about, right? That's, that's for your benefit and for my benefit. And so we're, we're taking it in the natural sections or the sections that are broken up, and you see that they, they kind of follow with what is there for you. Uh, but just, hey, that's, that's a free one. You go, why are there chapters and verses? That's why, simply to help you find your spot. Not there in the original, so they would have originally just picked up the, the, the whole book of Matthew, and they would have thumbed through until they found what they were looking for. Uh, but verse 12 tells us the how and why Jesus ends up in Galilee. Uh, what we would maybe expect at the beginning of chapter 4, when Jesus goes down to Judea, to, towards Jerusalem, where the kind of the, the temple is, where uh, the, the David's ancestral throne would have been, you would have expected that if Jesus is the, the promised Savior, this promised offspring of David, that most of his ministry would take place around the place where David belonged to. Or you would expect for it to maybe happen really close all of the time to the religious center of Israel, right close to the temple. But instead, Jesus goes to the very farthest part of the northern part of Israel, up by the Sea of Galilee, so, so way away from Jerusalem. And you know, that's kind of a weird place for him to go. It tells us why Jesus withdrew. It says that when he heard that John had been arrested, so John the Baptist had been, uh, uh, it's laid out for us in the Gospel of Luke, in the Gospel of John, that, that, G, uh, that, that uh, John was 
preaching against Herod Antipas's taking of his sister-in-law as his wife, even though his brother was still alive. And you can just imagine, okay? You got a powerful world leader who takes something that's not his, and the street preacher says, hey, you shouldn't have taken that. Going to go well for the street preacher? Not so much, right? And so they arrest John, and, and he, go, he ends up dying in prison. Uh, but it's the occasion which, with which Matthew says, this is why Jesus withdraws up to Galilee. And that might just seem like the perfectly like, practical reason why. But then he goes a step further, and he says, it's not just because John was arrested, but it also fulfills Scripture. So once again, Matthew's coming back to this point of he really is, he's, he's helping you to see that Jesus is the one who was promised in the Old Testament. He is this promised servant that is in, in Isaiah. So both of these, there's actually two references smashed together in verses 15 and 16. One is, is Isaiah chapter 9, verses 1 and 2. And you'd be familiar with that. It's because it's for unto us a child is born. And right out after that is, He's going to be hanging out in this region of Zebulun and Naphtali, which are places that the Lord handed over. And he, and he says in Isaiah chapter 9, verses 1 and 2, that it becomes a place of contempt, a place of anguish, and a place of gloom. Like, so when, when, when people would think about the region around the Sea of Galilee and this area to the north, it wasn't a place where like, oh, that's where all the rich people summer home. Like, ugh, those people. Right? Like it becomes almost a byword among where they live, and yet there's this promise that then carries over into Isaiah chapter 42 and verse 7 that God is going to re-initiate a covenant with his people, going to renew his relationship with him through a new covenant, a new righteousness, and through this, there's new life that comes. Right. So in all of this, we come back to the starting point that nothing that Jesus does is accidental. Right? Even John's arrest, you go, well, that's really unfortunate. I, w- I wish that God would have prevented that. But John's arrest is the means by which Jesus fulfills Scripture so that he might fulfill every part of what the Old Testament says he will do and who he will be. But it's also interesting that in verse 17 that he, he withdraws, but he's not withdrawing back to obscurity. Remember last time when he was in Nazareth and for 30 years of kind of this silent window, we don't see anything about Jesus. Outside of this one account of him going to Jerusalem at 12 years old, everything else is silence. Until Jesus is baptized, until he is tempted, until he returns back to Galilee. Not to go back into the night quietly, but now in verse 17 he begins to preach the very same message that John the Baptist had been preaching. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Now, we would notice that there's an obvious difference between Jesus and John the Baptist. And yet, their initial message is exactly the same. The difference being that John the Baptist is heralding the kingdom of heaven is imminently at hand. And when Jesus says, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand, Jesus is the one who is ushering it in. So John can call it from a distance, but it is Jesus who is manipulating or making it happen. Manipulating, just saying, he is the one who is ushering in the kingdom of heaven at this point in time. So John could call it and say, this is what's going to happen, right? Kind of like, if you imagine, he's, he's a, a, the, the Major League Baseball announcer back with Babe Ruth. Babe Ruth calls his shot and he says, hey, Babe Ruth is going to hit it to right field. But Babe Ruth swings the bat, right? 
Imperfect analogy. Jesus is better than Babe Ruth. John the Baptist is better than whatever announcer was announcing back in the time. Right? But, but so one can, one can proclaim, and the other one is both proclaiming and actually doing what he is saying he is about to do, which is completely different than any other Old Testament prophet ever. All the other Old Testament prophets could call the people of Israel back to repentance because the, king, uh, the day of the Lord is at hand. In other words, the Lord is calling you to account, but they're not actually responsible for the Lord doing what he's about to do. When Jesus is preaching, like it's different than what I am doing. I can call you to repentance, but Jesus is the one who can alone bring new life to you. Like I can point out what he is doing, but it's Jesus who does the work. It's the Spirit that does the work. So it's an incredible thing when this eternal Son of God begins to proclaim, Hey, my kingdom is coming. My kingdom is at hand. And he doesn't say my, but we will see that it is very clearly his kingdom that is coming. And when we say the kingdom of heaven, we might want to stop for half a moment and go, well, what is that? It's not, oh, the expectation of the people at the time, when you think about a, 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 somebody in the, uh, in the line of David, as we looked at in Matthew chapter 1, the expectations of what this Savior or what this Messiah would do is that he would establish a physical kingdom right, with physical boundaries. He would sit on a physical throne. And the reality is a little bit different than that, isn't it? Jesus doesn't come to establish a physical kingdom with physical boundaries, with a physical throne, at least not yet. Now he is initiating a spiritual kingdom. The people are brought into it not through their naturalized citizenship, but through faith in him. But if I stop there for a minute, I wonder how much different we really are than the Israelites at the time when Jesus came onto the scene. How much do we expect our restoration, our renewal, maybe even our salvation to come through physical means, through a physical ruler, through a physical place of help? In the sense of... I, Fun, fun topic, right? We, we are, uh, it's part of the reason why we're in Matthew looking at the kingdom of heaven this year and next year. Uh, hopefully not the next year after that, but for a while. Is that we are, uh, I, I say it's a peculiar time, but it's really not that different because in, in four years we'll rinse, wash, and repeat. But it's an election year. And what I would also challenge you this morning is what, what are your hopes for what happens in November? If it goes your way, what is your hope? If it doesn't go your way, what is your dreaded expectation? How many of these cycles have you seen before and they have always, in some way, failed to do what you either hoped or they failed to be as horrible as you thought they might be? Maybe they came close. But you and I, we're, we're, we're very much like the Israelites of old. We look for physical help rather than God's spiritual provision. Right, what Jesus is initiating is so far beyond what they would think of or ask or imagine that they need. But what they need more than somebody to set up a temporary kingdom that hopefully lasts for one or two or three generations longer than the last time, what they really need is new life, spiritually, spiritually. 
They need renewed hearts. They need a, a renewed mind. They need the ability to do what God would require of them, not because it is legally required of them, but because their hearts have been changed to seek after the Lord. Now, hear me, please. Elections are important, have consequences, good or bad. We live in a unique time in human history where you and I, we get to actually like put a vote to what we say is important to us. Like, don't, don't discount that. We ought to hope for and pray for legal things that uphold the righteousness of the Lord. But hear this, whatever legal thing it is will not touch the human heart. It might affect the outward behavior just as much as your, your rules of your house hopefully affect the behavior within your house. But you and I know that our rules don't touch the heart. We aim for the heart and we establish the rules for a reason, but really what we want is a heart that is obedient and rejoicing in doing the right thing, not one that has to do it under compulsion. Hopefully. I mean, we'll take obedience begrudgingly, but wouldn't you rather have obedience joyfully if you're a parent? Hey, you'll take them doing the chore that you gave them, begrudgingly, but you would much rather them do it quickly and joyfully because they desire to do it. And so, went off on a sidetrack there. But what kind of kingdom are you and I looking for? What kind of kingdom were the people of Israel looking for? And the kingdom that Jesus was proclaiming, the kingdom that John was proclaiming, required repentance. Not go grab your weapons. It called for a changed heart to turn away from the wrong that you're doing and to prepare because this kingdom is not going to be one established in the normal means. It is coming and being established upon the righteousness of Jesus and only those who enter by faith can come in. And so he begins to preach in Galilee. And then the second section, verses 18 through 22. So to the crowds, he's calling them to repentance. But then to another group, he's calling them to follow him. We see the first call of the disciples in verses 18 through 22. Uh, we're not going to go completely in the weeds of time frame, but if you go to John chapter 1 and, and, and kind of read through there, it's very possible that Peter and Andrew began to follow Jesus at his baptism and then returned to Galilee, right? Because they were followers of John the Baptist, and, and he said, Behold, here is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And some of John's disciples began to follow Jesus, but then Matthew lays out Jesus' temptation right there. We don't know an exact time frame. So he might have called them earlier, now he's coming back. Or this could be the first call, just to, just to kind of really muddy the waters for you as you get into it. But he comes upon Peter and Andrew casting their nets into the water because they're fishermen. And he calls them. Uh, if we just stop for a minute. Again, thinking about Jesus. Now we're saying he's initiating a spiritual kingdom. What kind of followers would you expect Jesus to call to himself if he was kicking off a movement towards a spiritual kingdom? Again, we would expect him maybe to be 
in Jerusalem recruiting priests and scribes and Levites, the religious people who had an eye for Scripture, who knew it, who were trained in it, who had a background in it. And instead, he's up in a place held by contempt, possibly as much as 50-50 split Gentile-Jew population. And he's calling regular people to follow him. And maybe even less than regular people to follow him. Later on in the book of Acts, when, when Peter and John are taken uh, into meet the Sanhedrin, it says that they recognize that they were common, uneducated men. Like, not just that they were regular, but it's like that there was nothing special about them from their, their, their academic background. They were tradespeople. In fact, when they begin to speak in tongues on the day of Pentecost and the people are gathered around them, they say, wait, aren't these just regular Galileans? Why do we hear them speaking in our tongues? In other words, these guys shouldn't know how to do that. And Jesus is inviting them, rather than what we might expect, he adds into his mix more unexpected characters, a tax collector and a guy who is a zealot or a rebel against the the, the Roman government to his mix, picking guys from the everyday crowd of people, not from maybe a religious background. And he handpicks them, though. It's not like he just goes, oh, we're out of options. Jerusalem didn't work out. Let's go to Galilee. He begins in Galilee. And notice this, that in God's fulfilling his word in Isaiah, he's also, like in the wisdom of God, he sends or has Jesus withdraw to an unlikely place in order to call unlikely followers who will turn the world upside down with the message of who Jesus is. And he tells them, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. There's some debate about where that phrase comes from, if it's just one Jesus made up or if it was active in use before that. There's a chance that it was active in, in Greek and Roman use, and it was kind of used, fishers of men was, or teaching somebody to be a fisher of men was, was teaching them all that was required in a new trade or a new vocation. That's potential. It could be that Jesus is fulfilling Jeremiah chapter 16, although it's interesting that Matthew doesn't allude to that since Matthew's really keen on saying this is fulfilling Scripture. But in, Matthew, or in Jeremiah chapter 16, verses 14 through 17, when, when the Lord is laying out a message of, of restoration after a time of terror among his people, he says, Therefore, behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when it shall no longer be said, as the Lord lives who brought up the people out of Israel out of the land of Egypt, but as the Lord lives who brought up the people of Israel out of the north country and out of all the countries where he had driven them, For I will bring them back to their own land that I gave to their fathers. Behold, I am sending for many fishers, declares the Lord, and they shall catch them. And afterward I will send for many hunters, and they shall hunt for them from every mountain and every hill and out of the clefts of the rock. For my eyes are on all their ways, they are not hidden from me, nor is their iniquity concealed from my eyes. So there might be this idea that that there's a fulfillment of this, this God using people who are pursuing people towards restoration. Or it could very simply be they're fishermen and he's telling them, you have a new job. You're not casting for fish anymore. You're now casting for men. 
And what's fascinating, it, it hits me every time I read through this, and maybe, maybe it does for you, or maybe you just go, well, of course they did. It was Jesus. But when he calls Peter and Andrew in verse 20, it says, immediately they left their nets and they followed him. They weren't just leaving their hobby. They were leaving their work. Right? They were fishermen. It's like, it wasn't like leisure day on the lake. Oh, good. We finally get to be at the Sea of Galilee casting nets today. This is every day. But immediately they leave their nets and they follow him. And then he sees James and John, the son of Zebedee, who are in the boat with their dad. And they're fixing their nets and he calls them in verse 22. It says, what about them? Immediately they left the boat and their father and followed him. They left their business. They left their family immediately. And what strikes me about this passage every time I come to it is this question. How many ordinary fishing days had these guys had before this? In their lifetime, how many ordinary days where they go to the lake or they go to the sea, they fish, they cast their nets, they haul in fish, they mend their nets, they go home. The next day they cast their nets, they haul in fish, they mend their nets, they go home. In the midst of the incredibly ordinary, they meet Jesus and everything changes. And the question that, that, that kind of impacts off of that is, will I be as quick to leave to follow Jesus as they are? I, if Jesus calls me to follow him, will I be as quick to say, I need to go where he's going? At face value, when we read Matthew chapter 4, that seems, like, that seems really easy. Of course, I would leave everything to follow Jesus. Let's just step back a little bit. I'm not saying that Jesus is calling you to leave your place of work or your family this morning, but just put yourself in this mindset. You are at work. Bills are due in two weeks. This paycheck matters in order to pay bills, pay for the house, pay for the car, pay for the utilities, pay for groceries. Jesus walks in and says, hey, why don't you come follow me? Do you leave him? Do you, do, you, do you leave? Do you leave like the apron off on the table? Whatever you do, is it done and following Jesus is more important now? You're spending the day with your family. Maybe you have a family business. You're working with your family. Dad's depending on you to help get the job done, and, and Jesus shows up and says, hey, I need you to come follow me. Do you leave your dad on the ladder? I think it's a little bit more complicated when I put myself in the picture. You, I mean, I, I think of Zebedee sitting in the boat, and can you imagine James and John just like, see you, Dad. Family business that their dad, had, Zebedee's dad probably had fished, his dad had probably fished, like the, the, the fishing is what they do. It's not that they don't have other options, it's like this is what they do. They're fishermen. When, when we spent time in West Africa and the fishing villages that are just like the, the, the city has morphed around and you still have fishing villages and you ask us, well, how did you come to be a fisherman? None of them says, well, I dreamed of being a fisherman when I was young. So this is what we do. We're fishermen. Like, yeah, but like, when did you decide you wanted to be a fisherman? It's like, I didn't decide. Like, this is just what we do. So then to, to think about that, if you were to, to, to walk up to them and say, hey, leave everything that you know and follow me. 
And what are we going to do? Well, you're going to be fishers of men. What does that mean? You'll find out. You in? But the bigger question, and, and, and the bigger picture of grace here in this, though, is that the, 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 the model for the time was that a teacher or a rabbi wouldn't go and invite people to follow him. They usually went and said, hey, can I, can I, can I study under you? Hey, can I study under you? Like, great, great leadership thing where you don't have to go seek anybody out. They just come and you go, no, 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 yes, right? And in this case, Jesus is intentionally pursuing these guys and saying, hey, come follow me. By his grace, Jesus is choosing these guys to follow him. But then draw this out a little bit. Can you think about where were you, what circumstance of life were you in when you started either to hear about Jesus or Jesus invited you to follow him in faith? In, in what ordinary circumstances of life did Jesus meet you? And you might say, well, I was in extraordinary circumstances and in a time of terrible disarray and whatever, and, and, and Jesus met you there. Well, that's still, that's grace, incredible grace. But if you were just in the ordinary run of your life and the God of the universe got your attention, you repented and followed him in faith, what grace of his is that that he invited you? Look around you. There, there are people you work with and people that you grew up with and people that are all around you that, that maybe have heard and yet they've never, like, they, it's never connected. Why, out of his grace, you know, like, let this, let this trouble you and, and encourage you all in one big blow, right? Why did Jesus choose you to follow him? Why did he invite you? And you, you might go, well, he just invites everybody. Okay, but the why does not everybody follow him? Why you? It, it, you're an ordinary person. There's nothing, and I don't mean this in a mean way to you, there's nothing extraordinary about you in, in terms of like all of human history. You're a normal person. You're an ordinary person. Why does the God of the universe set his eye and affection on you? Like, and I don't mean that in a negative way. Think of, like the depths of God's grace that He sees you and He invites you in to follow Him, to know Him and to study under Him and to walk in Him and to experience new life. Like, what was the ordinary day that you were in the middle of where it was like, aha, following Jesus is the only thing that makes sense right now? I, I don't know how everything else in my life is going to sort out, but following Jesus is the one step that I know I have to take. And, and, and maybe, maybe you go, that, that has never been the case for me. And I just very simply ask you, what, what, what other things in your life will last for Forever. What, what things are you laboring over that will last for eternity? What skills do you have that are going to matter 100 years from now? What possessions do you have that will matter to you 100 years from now? They might matter to your children or your grandchildren, but to you, what, what will matter? The only thing that will matter for you for eternity is whether or not you're in the kingdom of heaven. 
And the only way in the kingdom of heaven is through faith in Christ. And the only way into faith in Christ is to recognize that he is the one thing that you cannot live without. Everything else can come or go, but Jesus, he's the thing that I can't lose. He's the thing that I can't not have. And so these guys, when they heard it, they say, immediately, they followed. An incredible picture of God's loving kindness to call people to himself. Like, Jesus doesn't necessarily need people. He chooses to use people along the way. He chooses to incorporate people into his family. He, he chooses to bring people into his kingdom. But by himself, he's, he's sufficient. He has what he needs. And yet, out of his great love for you, he extends the invitation, come follow me. Come be with me. Come lay down your heavy yoke and take on my easy yoke and learn from me. And he goes, this last section, verses 23 through 25, he, we see this broad picture. What does Jesus' ministry look like broadly before his death, burial, and resurrection? So he's traveling all throughout Galilee at this point, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming or preaching the good news of the kingdom, the gospel, and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. And his fame spreads throughout the whole area so that people are bringing him all their sick, those afflicted with various diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons, those having seizures and paralytics, and he healed them. And the great crowds followed from Galilee and the Decapolis. And so basically they're coming from all over Israel to see him. And you think about that list, teaching, preaching, healing. John the Baptist clearly did number two, right? Proclaimed the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Not real clear that he uh, taught in the synagogues, but you think about the prophets. What did they do? They, they taught and they proclaimed. The priests, they taught, but they didn't necessarily proclaim the good news of the kingdom. But think about the scale by which Jesus teaches, preaches, and heals. Uh, it, it, especially in terms of his healing, it says that he heals those afflicted with various diseases, but they bring him all of the sick. He heals every disease, every affliction from among the people. And the list is diseases, pains, demons, seizures, paralytics, and then various other diseases, which increases his fame, which increases people coming to hear about the kingdom. But I want to spend just a minute here because uh, it might lead us to spot like, well, why doesn't the church keep, why, why, don't, why don't we see that in the church now? Why don't we see crazy amounts of healing in the church now? And I want to point out, first of all, that when Jesus is healing and, and, and the crowds are coming to him, it is, there's a gospel purpose in that it's revealing, all of his miracles are revealing who he is and announcing clearly that the kingdom of heaven is at hand. There's a, there's a clear kingdom of heaven invasion where those things that are broken in the world are being disrupted, specifically with Jesus right in the middle of it. But then in Matthew chapter 11, verses 1 through 6, we see this. I'm, I'm, I'm stealing a little bit from down the road. We'll get there eventually. Uh, but it talks about Jesus had, had, had been teaching his disciples, and John the Baptist is still in prison, and he hears about what Jesus has been doing. And so he asks, he sends a question with his disciples, with his followers, to Jesus. And he asks this question in verse 3, Matthew chapter 11. The, the question is, so he's hearing about all that Jesus is doing, but he says, are you the one who is to come or shall we look for another? 
Like, in other words, are you the promised one? Are you the Messiah? Are you the one that we have been putting all of our hopes on? Are you the one that I was laying out the red carpet for? Are you the one I was preparing the way for? And Jesus answered them in a really kind of interesting way. Jesus didn't say, tell John, "Uh uh-huh. He says, go and tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight, and the lame walk. Lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear, and the dead are raised up, and the poor have good news preached to them. And blessed is the one who is not offended by me. In Luke, it hits it a little bit harder, and it says at that time, like when the question comes, Jesus invites John's disciples to observe, and there's like a crazy amount of healing that takes place right then and there. But instead of just giving John a blank, yes, I am, or no, I am not, answer, he says, tell him what you hear and see. And he tells them to look and and report on what is taking place in their midst. The blind are receiving their sight, the lame are walking, lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the poor have good news preached to them. What he is expecting is that John will clearly understand that what Jesus is doing, only Jesus can do. Therefore, Jesus is the one that they are waiting for. So within the Gospel of Matthew, when we see Jesus healing every affliction and every disease from among the people... One of the things that we ought to go is ask is, why is he doing this? So that they might know with certainty that he is the promised one. He is the Son of God in the flesh who has control over all things. But I want us to be careful. Uh, as Baptists, this is an easy one to just skirt under the rug, right? Like, oh, we don't, healings don't happen. Things like that don't happen. And I want to say this really, really, I guess, as hedging my bets as best I can in the sense of if by God's grace he allows us to pray for and see the sick healed, we don't control it. We have no say over whether or not our prayers for the healings of someone will be answered in the way that we desire to see it answered. doesn't mean that the answer will not be Not that it won't be answered. Jesus isn't the tool for us building our kingdom. In the sense of, uh, he's he's not the gateway for us to obtain fame and fortune because we have this magic ability to heal people. Okay? However, the balance to this is, question that might be a little bit hard for us depending on where, what your background is and where you're reading it from. When we pray for those that we know that are afflicted in whatever way, do we pray to Jesus as if he has our abilities and our limitations, or do we pray to him as the God of the universe who has all ability and all authority? And then the follow-up question right off of that is, is he sufficient for us still if he says no? Because if the second answer to that question, if we say he's not sufficient for me if he says no, then he's not sufficient for you if he says yes. If he is only sufficient for you as far as he does for you what you ask for him to do, you're God and he's not. 
On the flip side, I'm also convinced that we pray far too little and with far too little expectation that he will hear and he is capable than what we ought to. That we might often add in prayer on top of the prescription card rather than relying and praying with expectation that he hears and that he is capable. At the same time, on the back end of that, resting in his sovereign care over us. If he says no, he will be sufficient. If he says no, he has a purpose. If he says no, he is doing something that I don't see yet, and he is still good, he is still worthy, he is still faithful. And that's a, hard, that's a hard balance to strike. Because again, depending on how we see Jesus, he either, he either has to say yes to every time we ask him to heal something or else he's not listening. Or we couldn't possibly ask him for anything because it's not his time and he doesn't do that anymore. Maybe the truth is in the middle. <laughs> that he is capable. He is still healing today. We see people. Like, we, we hear it and we see it. And yet, here's another question for us. If Jesus heals, who gets the glory? How often do we ascribe credit to something other than him when healing comes? And you say, well, that's, that's really simple because there's medicine involved, and so the medicine obviously did it. And again, more nuance, and maybe I'm going off script a little bit too long. But if by his grace he allows medication to work in your case, there are probably others also that the medication doesn't work for. So who gets the credit? And at the end of the day, all of it, all that Jesus does in and through us is for his kingdom's sake, and and yet we're little kingdom builders, and we kind of want to take credit for it, don't we? Want to take credit for how well my family is doing, unless it's a bad day, then like uh, that's somebody else's fault today. I want to take credit when job is going well and and it's all, all as it should be, but if it's goes away, like that's somebody else's problem, right? Whose kingdom and whose glory are, am I most concerned with? And do I see him not only as sufficient for what I need, but do I see him as worthy enough that I would leave everything else to follow him? What, what else has a higher place of priority in your heart than Jesus does? And again, face value, go, nothing does. Do some hard work this week. Evaluate what, what has a higher place of worship? What has a higher place of concern? What has a higher place of precedence and priority in my heart? There's some difficult work in there. And yet on the back side of it, if you wrestle through that and, 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 and you begin to see Jesus as the ultimate priority in your life, you'll be amazed at how much those other things are falling into place in the ways that you are trying to white-knuckle them in right now. But not only that, you'll find that he's worthy and he's sufficient even when he calls you to leave the things that you are finding your comfort in.